You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It came from the swimming pool, and it's called the White House Press Corps. couple of quick notes about the premium podcast it can be as low as two dollars a month you'll get an extra podcast that has archived episodes broadcasted on that channel as well as additional bonus episodes that you'll get when you're a member of the premium podcast www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com also i'm on twitter so join me on twitter i am at at my hist at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Good afternoon. The White House briefing room, known as the James Brady Press Briefing Room, was once the White House swimming pool installed in the White House for Franklin Roosevelt by the March of Dimes organization and used by him and all presidents. Press briefings were at that time given in the executive office building in what is known as the Indian Treaty Room or occasionally in the East Room in the White House. And you know that room because it's the one with those big, lovely yellow drapes in the background. After one of the most, uh, we think, open and inclusive and we think successful inaugurals in American history. Uh, President Clinton today got to work. In 1969, to accommodate the number of news organizations that were covering the White House, Nixon had the pool filled in, and the reporters were moved into the West Wing, in a room that's very close to the White House staff offices, including that of the press secretary. Everyone seems to have the same opinion of that room that if you're a fan of the West Wing TV show, you saw all the time, and it looks like this giant room, or the room that you see now with Sean Spicer speaking in it. Everyone seems to have the same impression. It's much more cramped than what the TV cameras make it seem. Received word from the Senate that the first 16 of our cabinet and sub-cabinet officials have been confirmed by the Senate. As you know, he signed his first executive order, toughening uh, the ethics rules that he laid out 
during the campaign, and he signed the executive order putting those into action. And finally, he signed a national security directive, which adds Bob Rubin and Madeleine Albright to the National Security Council, strengthening his resolve to make sure that economic decisions are at the center of our national security policy. As George Stephanopoulos described in his 1990 tell-all of the Clinton administration, all too human, a bank of video cameras on tripods anchored the back, and every movie theater seat was filled. Photographers crouched on the floor by the podium, and the aisles were stacked with an assortment of staff and other spectators. And thus he began his first press conference. 1993, of the Clinton presidency. And then he'd face a barrage of questions, uncomfortable questions, in the administration's first day. Helen Thomas, UPI reporter, sat in the front row, as she did for every president from Kennedy to Obama. Unfortunately, with her passing, she's not available for this new president. Thomas asked about the president's plan for gays in the military, which he had made a promise on the campaign trail after he was asked about it in a speech. But it hadn't really been a big subject during the campaign. But now with the Joint Chiefs opposed to the policy, it became a big one. Stephanopoulos knew that there was no movement on this issue. Sam Nunn, the head of the Armed Services Committee, the Joint Chiefs, they were adamantly opposed to anything Clinton might do here. But Stephanopoulos had to say, the president plans to end dis discrimination against homosexuals in the military. Then to the nomination of Zoe Baird, attorney general candidate, who had used undocumented worker as a nanny at that point. The administration was getting savage in the press, and particularly in talk radio over this, looking like a bunch of overprivileged yuppies. You know, it was a pretty small issue, but they were getting savaged over this. He knew that she felt that she had disclosed to the transition team headed by Warren Christopher that she had this documented worker. She did her thing, and the nomination went forward. So she wasn't going to apologize for it now. And she didn't want to withdraw unless President withdrew her nomination and said it was his fault. Said Stephanopoulos, we were sucking wind on our first day with an attorney general candidate who broke the law. But all he could say at the podium was, the president believes she'll make an excellent attorney general. Then came the follow-up question. If Miss Baird decides to withdraw her name, will the president accept it? In a heartbeat, Stephanopoulos thought, he wished, that Baird was offering to resign instead of fighting. But all he could say was, Right now, Miss Baird is testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and President Clinton continues to believe she'll make a good attorney general. Sounded good, but two words. Right now. Were what he could see all of the reporters writing down. Right now. They'll smell blood, he thought. The questions continued. Did Mr. Clinton realize that his attorney general candidate had this problem? <laughs> Stephanopoulos fumbled the answer, and then the zinger. Are you guys going to continue blocking us from going up the steps? 
Stephanopoulos had started a procedure of closing the door between the press briefing room and the staff offices in the West Wing. I mean, the press are right there in where a lot of the activities going on in the in the in the West Wing, and they have the freedom to kind of travel and walk up the stairs into the press secretary's office, or as Helen Thomas had done every day for 30 years at 7 a.m., waited outside the press secretary's office to get the first question. Well, right now we're figuring out a structure. In reality, Stephanopoulos knew there was no good answer. According to his account, Hillary Clinton wanted the press out of the West Wing. And according to his account, it came from a suggestion from Barbara Bush. Get that press out of the West Wing so that your husband can operate without every little thing being seen. But Stephanopoulos couldn't say that, that it was coming from the president's wife. Indeed, Clinton himself, according to Stephanopoulos' account, had just asked him, why are we closing the door to the West Wing? So he had to answer, we're figuring out a structure. Helen Thomas snapped back, what does that mean? It means what I said it meant. We'll review, and we'll review that kind of plan before we do anything, Stephanopoulos said. But you've just done it, Helen Thomas retorted. Stephanopoulos couldn't believe how bad this was getting. He knew that his concerned face, his wavering answers, his inability to dodge, would be the metaphor for an administration that was failing. And all sorts of stories, process stories, about the administration Helen Thomas continued the assault. What was the reason why you should put uh, upstairs off limits to us? Right now, we're just going through all of the offices, and we're trying to figure out how to make it work the best. We're just organizing. We're still moving things around. Change of administration, we have automatically assumed that we could get near the press secretary. And we'll continue to make sure that we can give you all the information you need. It was the first day. And as he sulked off after 25 minutes, felt like a pitcher who had been pulled off the mound after only the first inning, he heard Helen Thomas say, Welcome to the big leagues. That was our first day, Stephanopoulos said, managing crisis before we had functioning computers or even knew how to work the phones. But if that wasn't disastrous enough, then came the leaks. They're killing us, George, Clinton said to him. An issue of Time magazine had just said that Senator Moynihan, the head of the Senate Finance Committee, the guy that was going to be responsible for passing whatever Clinton wanted on health care, on the budget, on welfare. Time magazine reported that one of the Clinton administration, a anonymous official, in quotes, said, he's not one of us and we're going to have to roll over him. Clinton was livid, and he ordered Stephanopoulos to find the leak and fire him, and he called up Moynihan and apologized, saying that he would find the leaker and fire him. Such a search-and-destroy mission was futile, Stephanopoulos said, because the link could have came from any one of a hundred people. Moynihan was furious, and for this and a lot of other reasons, he did appear to get revenge on the Clinton administration, stalling some of his agenda. While he didn't know who the leaker was, the comment 
we can roll over him, was not an uncommon feeling in a presidency that had just begun, a president just elected with that mandate of the people. The head rush of the first hundred days of a presidency. We felt like we were FDR. Nothing was going to stand in our way. Or so we thought. As the administration would get hammered in the coming days on gays in the military, on health care which would die within the Senate without a vote, the budget plan that would languish and would only be approved with Al Gore's tie vote. Clinton was elected with a minority of the vote, just 43%. And he really did, I don't know how much this is remembered now, but really did have a rocky presidency in that first term. By June of 1993, his first year, his poll numbers started sagging. In 1994, it was hard to find anybody who thought he'd get reelected. Much reduced from its initial heft. Middle-class tax cut, which disappeared. His diagnosis would be that there failed to be adequate planning. Better preparation could have led to a more successful 100 days for Clinton. In 1814, after abdicating the throne, Napoleon Bonaparte, once the Emperor of France, was now the Emperor of the island of Elba in the Atlantic Ocean. Sitting in a house, tearing above the little city in the harbor there. He made the best of it. His friends were taken care of. He had his servants in attendance. Many of his best soldiers came with him. And from Elba... Napoleon watched the events in Europe. He saw that his enemies were being confounded. The Congress of Vienna, the nations that had dethroned Napoleon, Austria, Russia, Prussia, Britain, couldn't agree on much. They had restored the Bourbon king to France, and the French chafed at having a monarchy back again after the revolution. It had been... More than 18 years since they had had their revolution and shed their king in the bloodiest fashion possible. Napoleon watched all this. And the former emperor was lightly guarded. Given his defeat and abdication, it was something of a gentleman's agreement between nations that he stay on that island and he didn't face the harsher fate that he would when he was captured again. Napoleon seized his opportunity. And he sailed to France with a small contingent of men, his best soldiers, veterans from the Napoleonic War. And as he calculated, the people of France, especially the soldiers who had served with him in his wars, immediately took to him, and his army grew in size. In a famous encounter, when a group of soldiers working for the king at that time stopped Napoleon and his party, he jumped out in front of them, ripped open his coat, and said, Would you shoot your emperor? They would not. The troops joined with Napoleon, switched sides, and soon Napoleon took Lyon. And then in Paris, he set up a government there. And to build support, he worked now with liberals, liberals who had opposed his government when he was emperor 
and set up a new constitution with rights for the people. Now, the Allies that had just dethroned Napoleon were none too pleased with these developments, and they converged to retake France. Assuming that in his weakened condition, all Napoleon would do is defend the city of Paris. Make it have him. But Napoleon instead attacked them. And after a series of battles, we had the battle known as Waterloo, fought in Belgium. Known in history as a great defeat, but as the victor Wellington would say, it was a close thing. Several times, it's possible, Napoleon could have won that battle, defeated the British army, and then who knows how long he would have ruled for but instead he lost, forced to retreat back to France in weakened condition, lost his political support, and eventually surrendered himself to a British Navy vessel, where he'd be taken to a harsher captivity in St. Helena. There was a name that historians gave for this dazzling episode of French history, world history, and the Napoleon legend. It was called the 100 Days, and it's creeped into American politics. Franklin Roosevelt did not return from exile, nor was he, despite what the press or some southern conservative opponents might have called him, nor was he an emperor. But he did take power in a flurry of energy and support that's rare in American politics to do it. And he faced an alarming crisis that shocked the nation. Banks were failing. There was a massive economic depression. He faced the political situation that no other president would have to do because of the 20th Amendment that would change the place when the president and Congress would begin their activities. He had to wait to march to do something about the Congress, to take power from Hoover. So FDR called Congress into session with newly elected members. Three years prior, Republicans had controlled the House. Now there was a margin of 90 House members in the Democrats' favor and began to pass multiple pieces of legislation, many of them very different from each other, as he used a variety of tactics to try to cure the depression. It wasn't all just about work programs, as some people think. Some of it were deficit-reducing programs. Some of it was cut in veterans' benefits. Some of it was a banking bill that people didn't understand. But when there were some questions from these newly elected, elected Congress members, some of them who couldn't even find where their seats were, let alone read a piece of long legislation... Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Congressmen were reminded that in the Congressional Register, their votes would be recorded, and this new popular president was watching. Somehow each modern president is saddled with this theme now, the 100 days. What will a president do in their first 100 days? President Johnson wanted to be like FDR and told his aides, jerk any damn bill you can. We're going to have a better 100 days than FDR. That's all the president gets sometimes, to execute bold change. And after the presidency could be finished, could be finished in terms of the amount of attention paid to it. First hundred days. President Kennedy tried to shake it, making a point of saying in his inauguration speech that the work would not be done in the first hundred days, nor even the first thousand. It was a nice try. 
The American political system doesn't work that way. A lot of it has to do with momentum and little patience for new presidents. Though Kennedy would pass his Peace Corps legislation, on his 88th day, he would suffer a great foreign policy defeat at the Bay of Pigs. Ronald Reagan embraced the idea of the 100-day period and his aides planned for public speeches, meetings with congressmen, a very energetic schedule for a 69-year-old. This legend of the 100 days in which the president is supposed to cast his spell over the nation and especially control the Congress might seem puzzling to early Americans. Framers of the Constitution, founders of the country, the original politicians, they might not understand it. Because why is the president supposed to dazzle anyone? Why is the president supposed to control the Congress at all? An apocryphal story, perhaps of old time, is that during the design of Washington, D.C., Pierre Lafont, who was designing the city, remarked to George Washington that he may have erred in making the White House too far away from the Capitol building. And Washington supposedly replied to Lafont, the farther the better. I doubt it happened. But it shows you a reasonable view some presidents have. We don't view presidents that way, separated by distance. In our day-to-day discussions of politics, we don't talk about separation of branches that the early framers made such a big deal about. We judge presidents by, among other things, how well they manage Congress. And a lot of it comes from FDR. But even FDR had a predecessor to draw an example on. In his manipulation and strong-arming of Congress, his former boss, when he was in the Navy Department, as an assistant secretary, Woodrow Wilson. For Wilson, the presidency was a chance to put into action what he had written about about as a professor at Princeton. He had complained in his paper, Congressional Government, about how weak the president had become. He found himself in a position to do something about it. And in 1913, he kicked out the party that had been power for 16 years. And he started 1913 with a bit of a blank slate to try some of his academic ideas that his predecessors, most recently William Howard Taft and Teddy Roosevelt, had mixed success on. Yes, Teddy Roosevelt was strong in many aspects. The one thing you don't hear a lot of talk about is his management of Congress because he had hardcore conservatives in Congress and he wasn't able to get around the speaker Taft, for his part, was never able to get Congress to do anything, especially on his major pledge, the issue of tariff reform. Very weak bill passed. Wilson decided to take this issue on. Many thought he was crazy. The tariff issue had defined Americans all through the 19th century and early 20th. It was the basic issue of federal U.S. politics at that time. Should we go high tariff or low tariff? And it's an issue that oddly is coming up again in our politics, but the basic issue is this. Do you go with a low tariff and make imports available, prices lower for people? And this was a big issue, particularly in the South, particularly in the West, among farmers who needed to import various goods, who needed those prices to be low. And it was the opposite in New England, other areas of the North, Pennsylvania, New York. They wanted high tariffs to protect their industries. There's a side effect. 
And as someone who looks at history politics, I, I do find this side effect interesting. There was a side effect of high tariff policy. And that's that the federal government got a lot of money. And it led to an increase in the size of the federal government and fighting over where to spend the money and various constituencies that liked the money they were receiving or that got jobs. That was a big issue in American politics. And the two parties, basically Democrats, low tariff, basically Republicans, high tariff, though individuals were in between on these issues. It's an interesting, uh, as a sidebar, it's an interesting issue because we're hearing tariffs being raised again. And there is that side issue of uh, remember that when you do raise a tariff, money comes in. So the people paying for it are generally those who are buying products that are imported or where parts of it are imported. The side issue that hasn't come to the forefront yet because we haven't had tariff debates so long is that it brings revenue to the federal government. And revenue sometimes causes fights. Put that aside. Wilson wanted lower tariffs, though he was willing to raise it and and be moderate on certain things. But he wanted a broad tariff bill that would kind of fix the issue that had been such a squabble over time. Also, as a new progressive president, Woodrow Wilson thought he'd replace the old bosses and the senators, who he called the Stand Pat Senators in Washington. And he'd take them out of the decision-making. He told his postmaster general, Albert Burleson, that he would not consult Congress. He would not consult those stand-pat senators on any postal appointments. As Postmaster General Burleson, a man from Texas, informed him that if he didn't consult with Congress about 56,000 jobs in the post office, he didn't consult with those congressmen or senators who lived in those districts where the people would be hired, they would sabotage his whole agenda. Wilson and Burleson argued for hours about this. Burleson learned how stubborn Wilson could be. But Burleson held his ground. And in about a week's time, he was called back for another talk with Wilson. Burleson said, look, I, I insist I will hire honest people, but I will consult with the people on the Hill. I don't want to ruin your administration, sir. Eventually, after talking out a bit, Wilson said, yes, I suppose that is right. Next, Wilson set his sights on Congress, particularly Senator Simmons from North Carolina. As the head of the Finance Committee in the Senate, this would be the individual pushing tariff reform legislation. Wilson wasn't entirely sure he trusted Simmons. Simmons was a conservative. He was a supporter of the Speaker of the House, Champ Clark, to be president over Woodrow Wilson in the election the year before. Wilson has to see his Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, also from North Carolina, and an opponent of Simmons. Uh, Josephus Daniels was the head of a faction in North Carolina who were progressive Democrats, opposed to Simmons, but Daniels insisted with Wilson, although he opposed Simmons, removing him would be a huge political mistake. If he succeeded, the conservatives in the Congress would exact revenge on Wilson, and if he didn't, if he didn't take him out, he'd have a real bad enemy in a real big position. Wilson decided to keep Daniel's rival, Simmons, in the position of finance chair and not oppose him. But he let it be known that he would not resist him remaining in the chair if it would push the president's tariff reform. Simmons got the hint and became one of Wilson's biggest supporters on this issue. Wilson's other ally in the House of Representatives was uh, Oscar Underwood of Alabama, another rival for the presidency. He had no trouble working with rivals. 
when a friend wrote to him that Underwood was taking all the credit for the president's tariff reform and Underwood might use it to run for president. Woodrow Wilson wrote back that if he passes tariff reform, maybe he deserves the office of the presidency. Simpson, Underwood supported the tariff reform, and Wilson kept pressure on the House of Representatives. And then he did something unusual. He asked to speak, and then he did something unusual. He asked to speak to the House and Senate in their chamber. This doesn't seem shocking to us now. It happens all the time. The president's always on Capitol Hill. State of the Union, right? But it was shocking. No president since John Adams, 118 years before, had made a speech to the Congress. It was a real breaking of convention. But Wilson felt it was important because the issue was so great that Congress had to debate if they would even allow Wilson to speak. One senator from Mississippi said, it appears like a king is on the throne. Echoing a comment that Thomas Jefferson had made, which was his reason for stopping this tradition of presidents speaking to Congress like an electoral majesty. Yet the Senate in the House did approve it. The move was heralded in the press. Even Republican newspapers like the Chicago Tribune thought his speech was impressive. Wilson told the crowd that he wanted to speak to them like human beings, not from an ivory tower. And he didn't just speak to congressmen from the podium pushing his message. He also helped many meetings with congressmen. And he could jolt and charm the professor, the two-year governor, the novice to politics, proved to be the consummate politician in this effort, this long-forgotten tariff reform effort in his first hundred days. The House passed it, and many thought, well, the Senate still looms, and it's been known in the past that previous efforts, like the Wilson tariff in the 1890s, different Wilson, during the Cleveland administration, passed the House and lingered forever in the Senate. It was well known that the Senate could be the body that could kill a bill. And as happened in the past, senators expressed their opposition to the bill, and the press widely conjectured that Woodrow Wilson's bill would be dead. Wilson again did something surprising. He made a public statement, and he attacked the tariff lobby, those industries that were getting protection at the expense of consumers. He said that they were being held above the interest of the nation. This caused many letters and many telegrams to be sent from the average Americans to the president and to many members of the House and Senate, supporting his message and attacking the tariff lobby. But he also had other little tricks. He used the very uncommonly used president's room in the United States Senate, in the Capitol. It's still there. It's a room for the President of the United States. Now, it's very uncommonly used. In fact, it's used a lot now for press conferences or for uh, ceremonies in the Senate because it's a very elegant room. I did um, read recently that it was used on January 20th where a bill that Trump had to sign uh, regarding the waiver granted to Mathis's uh, defense secretary was signed in that room. But it's very uncommonly used. Well, Wilson sets up shop there. And 
He has a special telephone line installed from the White House to the Senate. So even when he's in the White House, Wilton can call. He would send senators news articles or letters or telegrams he got from people from their states who supported the tariff reform. If there are senators who supported him, like Kay Pittman of Nevada, he would write a warm letter to the senator and enclose letters that, that he would say, I'm sure you've seen these. These letters demonstrate how your position is supported by the people in your state. For those who oppose tariff reform, Wilson would send letters from people in their states, letting them know that they were upset with their position on the tariff. But the opposition to Wilson's tariff built, especially Republicans who were upset about his speech attacking them as being tools of a lobby. President is saying that we're all corrupt. And the New York Times in an article asked, is there a tariff lobby at all? Or is it just a few industries trying to protect the jobs of those who work? Republicans fought back, saying Wilson was being very heavy-handed, calling for an investigation of this tariff lobby. Let's see if it exists. One newspaper called Wilson a Tyrannosaurus Rex, hanging over the Senate. But on a party-line vote, Wilson's tariff reform passed the first hurdle, the Ways and Means Committee. Then something rare happened. Wilson's party, the Democrats, were a little divided. There were some Democrats who disagreed with this reform bill. So the Democrats in the Senate held a caucus. And you have to understand that the Senate, even then and now, is run a little differently from the House. Uh, Members have a lot more individual freedom. But leaders of the Democratic Party arguing for hours with members said that the tariff was a party issue. Very rare for the collegial club. They said that a vote against the president's plan would be a mark of disloyalty to the party. Made a party issue with the votes of the Democrats united and a few Republicans, Wilson's tariff reform passed. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. So would Wilson's overhaul the banking system and the currency, a huge issue. Gold and silver politics had divided the parties, even divided those within parties. And Wilson would create the body we know now as the Federal Reserve. He'd also pass child labor laws, which were unfortunately held up as unconstitutional. Union recognition through the Clayton Act, which meant that unions could no longer be treated as a trust and prosecuted as if they were monopolies, antitrust legislation used against them. Could not happen after Clayton Act. And I like pointing the child labor and union efforts out because, you know, there is a there is a Wilson backlash these days and people are wanting to pull the statue down from Princeton. So do remember some of those contributions as well. President Wilson's first two years were very effective, but there was the tariff reform victory in his first hundred days that built that momentum. 
Wilson was the last Democratic president since Grover Cleveland, and certainly no one looked at Cleveland's first 100 days when Cleveland took office. And Cleveland had a very narrow agenda for the federal government. In fact, in his second presidency, in his inauguration speech, the comment that he made is unusual for a Democrat, that Cleveland said he was going to run the government like a business. Cleveland didn't influence Congress much, except through his negative power of the veto. He never passed with his big issue of tariff reform, yet in his own way, Cleveland went to work reforming corrupt areas of the government and fixing the Civil Service Commission. All the while, during the Cleveland presidency, the Princeton professor Woodrow Wilson was watching. He thought that Cleveland's recent vetoes, about 400 vetoes that Cleveland did, were encouraging for the power of the presidency that Wilson favored. He also felt that Cleveland was not using the full power as the founders had intended. He was using his vetoes to veto pension bills that would have bankrupted government and refused any program that would have aided those afflicted by the Depression of 1893 in his second term. He encouraged any attempts at tariff reform from the White House, you know, what he could, but he didn't manage Congress in the way Wilson wanted. So who's right here? You have... Two Democrats elected between the time of the Civil War and Franklin Roosevelt. But they have two very different opinions on the presidency and two very different ways that they acted. Wilson, who sought a heavy role, both as a professor and a president, who was very attuned to that 100 days, the need to be lightning fast, and Grover Cleveland, who would prefer to leave Congress to its work, while he managed the executive departments. The source of the debate might be found at the Constitutional Convention, in which there was a debate as to whether there should be one president or a council that would have the executive power. That's the way the state of Pennsylvania was run. That's the way Ben Franklin proposed at the convention, that the presidency should be handled. There was some debate. How many presidents will you have? But the winning side of the argument was perhaps expressed best by Pierce Butler of South Carolina, who argued that one man would be more likely to look out for the interests of the nation than a group of men who would simply be split into regional factions on the executive council. And by a vote of seven to three, each state had one vote at the Constitutional Convention, the convention decided to simply have one person. Now, a lot of the delegates looked to the leader of their convention, President the convention, George Washington, and saw him as the man most likely to take that office. And that probably helped in an affirmative vote. We can also look at the constitutional document that they created, and it clearly states that a president can recommend matters to Congress and can call them into special session. This verbiage indicates that there's a desire to have the president involved in lawmaking, involved in lawmaking, and through his veto power that he has some role but also creates a distance between the president's role and the lawmaking and discussion. He's recommending matters, and after a time period, when the Senate and the House have done their deliberations and there's an actual bill, it's sent to him for approval. There's a recognition that there's a distance that we don't always observe today. No debate about this among the staff of the newly elected President Reagan. 
He had plenty of historical examples to look at when he took office. Franklin Roosevelt was, of course, despite the ideological 180-degree turn, a role model for him. So was his predecessor Carter, in an odd way, as an example of what not to do. Carter had put forth a flurry of bills in 1977, but had no focus or theme to the presidency. These are huge bills with enormous changes, with enormous lobbyists, a lobbyist fighting against it. Reagan's planners decided a three-month window in which nearly every day would be planned. Reagan made public speeches and had 67 meetings with 100 congresspeople pushing his plans. Clinton tried to accomplish too much early, and he looked for an economic stimulus plan in 1993. It was filibustered in the Senate. His health care plan stagnated. Only his budget and a few other items like family leave got passed that early 100 days. And the lack of early success seems to conform the 100 days theory. The Clinton administration lost its momentum. Eventually, health care did. George W. Bush used his first month to pass a tax cut, but did little else domestically prior to 9-11. There can be no doubt that the 100 days running from January to mid-April is unfair, uh, mid-April is unfair, especially given its origins in the Franklin Roosevelt model. FDR started his 100 days in March as banks were failing all over the country and worse crises than today, than even the financial problems in 2009 that gave him the passage of the 20th Amendment. Presidents start on January 20th now. Congress is already in session thanks to the 20th Amendment. They have some momentum. No president since FDR has the kind of coattails that he had. President Obama, uh, within his first 100 days, signed a $700 billion stimulus bill, planned a withdrawal from Iraq, lifted a ban on stem cell research, reached out to Cuba for the first time, authorized the release of the Bush-era torture memos. He attempted to, to eke out a health care bill, but left it to Congress and didn't use the momentum from the first 100 days. He would have to pass it in the next year. And that, to me, changed the very dimension of what the health care bill turned out to be. And... The bill that's called Obamacare is really the Affordable Care Act and was written by what I would call blue dog Democrats in Congress, Max Baucus and, the, and, the, and his staffers and the group, um, with the intent, unsuccessfully, of gaining a Republican vote or two in the Senate. It was a very different bill than I believe would have come out in 2009. By the time he hit the 100-day mark, Roosevelt had passed 15 pieces of major legislation, the beginning of the New Deal, created everything from the Tennessee Valley Authority to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, created federal works projects, new financial regulations. As Time Magazine said, the U.S. of June 1933 was a substantially different place from that of 100 days earlier. Fair or not, it's the standard we use to judge presidents. 
And obviously, you see a lot of talk with the you know, new incoming Trump administration about the 100 days. And there's sort of on, on both sides, I, I think they see the strategy and they're using history to an extent. Trump administration, to my view, sees very clearly that speed is a factor, kind of the running gun offense, issue a lot of executive orders. Some of the orders are very controversial and very effective. I believe when you read closer, you'll see a lot of like qualifying statements. Executive order about a wall is going to require funding that might have to come from congressional votes, that will have to come from congressional votes. The order about the pipeline requires American-made materials to be used to the maximum extent possible. There's a lot of qualifying languages in some of these. But the intent is to pass them quick, pass them fast. On the other side, the, the opposition, Democrats are mixed, but there seems to be a majority opinion that the idea is to use the same obstruction tactics that they say were used against them and to slow down the momentum. And I do think both strategies are... Correct. Fast movement's important for a president coming in, and slowing it down is also a victory for the other side because they're trying to get to that June, that summer mark, where if it was the Clinton presidency, you started to be talking about, you know, his uh, $300 haircut that he got on the runway instead of his budget bill. If you're talking about the Bush presidency, it was the beginnings of the failure of his faith-based funding initiative that he wanted, and it was prior to 9-11, so that's the kind of things that they were talking about. President Obama, you go back to June of the first year, and you're starting to hear criticism, oh, well, is the, the stimulus plans working? Increased opposition on the health care plan. There's some fallacy to the 100 days, and to some extent, it's an American media and political punditry creation Because a president is going to have power for more than 100 days. But it does seem to be the period that there's the most focus on on them as the center. So I do think you don't want to be dragged too much into the idea of 100 days. But it's one of those things, because the media talks about it, because Congress considers it, because the American people are most focused on a president when they're a new president, it's something that we must discuss. I want to thank you for listening. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I am at Twitter, at MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.